I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. My guest today is Dr. Thomas Kakari, an assistant professor at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden and also the University of Pittsburgh here in the United States. Dr. Kakari studies early Alzheimer's disease-related brain changes and is working to develop new blood tests for Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Kakari's episode on Dementia Matters is a preview of his upcoming keynote address at our center's Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias Research Day. So if you're listening to this episode before April 5th, head over to our website and register for Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias Research Day. If you're listening after April 5th, a recording of Dr. Kakari's Research Day talk will be available after the event. Dr. Kakari, welcome to Dementia Matters. Thank you. Now, your work is dedicated to a hot topic in Alzheimer's disease science, blood tests that predict or identify Alzheimer's disease. And you and your colleagues are the world's leading researchers on this topic. How did your research journey lead you to where you are today? So thanks for a very interesting um, question. That's a very interesting topic that actually brings me back um, a few years. So yeah, my fascination with these aspects and looking at molecular aspects of medicine was I discovered when I was in um, undergraduate education in Ghana, uh, in West Africa, where I was born and raised. And I was really fascinated about molecular aspects of medicine, how, you know, the, the small things that go on, the molecular aspect of things that go on in the body especially, for example, when you eat and then how the digestion and the food goes through all the very tiny processes to to generate energy for you. So I continued in the same direction. And that's how I found myself uh, in my doctoral research, doing Alzheimer research and looking at biochemical and also cellular aspects. But after that, I wanted to move into more translational aspects. So that's why uh, I moved into postdoctoral um, studies in an area that is now a very hot topic, looking at developing blood biomarkers. At that time, it was not so clear that we were going to be able to succeed. And your keynote address at Research Day will be an overview of fluid biomarker research in Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And by fluid biomarkers, we mean information in the blood or the cerebral spinal fluid, otherwise known as just spinal fluid, that indicates a risk for Alzheimer's disease. And just like a test to measure cholesterol is used to predict heart disease risk, how close do you think we are to having these tests done in doctor's offices? I think we're pretty close because um, as we speak now, there are several efforts to actually bring these tests to the doctor's offices. And even to uh, reiterate that, there are some tests that are already available in some hospitals. So for example, there's a blood test called plasma neofilament light. So is a good measure of brain degeneration. So some of the changes that happen in the brain in Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia that are already available. For example, in, in Europe, it's available in some countries, like for example, in Sweden and in, in the Netherlands, these tests can be requested from some of the central labs. And then as you know, also there's uh, these tests from um, C2N that look at myeloid that also have received this uh, clearance 
and it's also available to request. But then the, the more recent ones that we have been also involved to develop have gained a lot of momentum. So a lot of the research grade assays that we developed and that's, those have been used in um, the clinical studies that have been published in high impact journals and have shown pretty good diagnostic accuracies and also robustness for use across multiple sites and also across different studies and different cohorts. These ones have now been moved into commercial forms. So for example, those that were developed in research labs have now, some of them have already been commercialized and also automated and that make them easier to access for clinical use. And in addition, there are some that are also being used in clinical trials. And some of, for example, Phosphatal 181 and Phosphatal 217 have already been used in clinical trials as surrogate markers for amyloid pathology. So it means that we're quite close in in seeing these tests being used uh, in the doctor's office. And it signals a very exciting time in the future of Alzheimer's disease diagnosis and also uh, management. Yeah, exciting seems to be the right word for that because it's taken a long time for the field itself to get to this really important moment. But in your answer, I think you really differentiated two important processes. One, there's research use of blood tests and, and looking at biomarkers, but then there's clinical use. And obviously in research use, you have a lot of control over who you're studying and what you're doing. And then clinical, well, that's a whole different game. And so you mentioned then the word commercialized. And so that what you're doing now, there is still another process after this, correct? That then has to make it available for the clinical use. Yes. And that's why, for example, when you have big companies, they have research and development departments compared to those that do the massive production. And it's the same thing that we also have in research. So when you go through the different processes and you're able to discover or develop something new, then you want to be able to test it. And you do these things uh, on small scales because, you know, you, for example, if you have a cohort of a thousand individuals, then you have reagents, you prepare your reagents in a way that you can control, be able to measure. But then when you're looking at basically global use, then you're looking at hundreds of thousands of individuals, right? And then these tests have to be available for each of the centers that order the tests. And one of the important things is that you have to make sure that there is a very good control, like the performances between different batches of these reagents have to be very comparable. And the capacity to do these is not, it's often not found within research settings. And this is at the point that basically after you've done the development and the research, then you move it more to factories or industries with the capacity to do that. It's typical to what we saw with the COVID vaccine, for example, that you realize that because the need was so, so, so huge at that time, and a lot of the industries that discovered some of the COVID vaccines did not have the capacity to meet the demands. Then they started contracting other companies to really take on some of the production for them so that they could meet the demand of what we needed. And exactly quite similar to that. So research industries, uh, research companies and research institutes have the capacity to develop new things. But then when it comes to needing to serve a massive population, we do not have that. So at that point, we have to work well with biotech companies or pharmaceutical companies that have the capacity for that. And one of the other things you said, which I think is really important, is you use the word access. 
And I think that's when you look at this disease, it affects the global community. And so that means people all over the world are experiencing thinking troubles and being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And so the work that you're doing can't stay in Sweden or in the United States alone. And we need to make sure that there's access to this technology throughout the world. But that also speaks to the value of what you're doing with blood, because it's easier to collect blood than it is to do a lumbar puncture and collect spinal fluid or to get very advanced imaging techniques that usually only occur at an academic center. And so before we get into the implications of that, which I'm very excited to ask of you, I want to go to just the basics of the test itself. How accurate are the current tests in truly reflecting what's happening in the brain? You know, starting with the spinal fluid that you study, and then also then the blood. Yeah, that's that's a question that you know that we ask ourselves all the time. Because one thing that also I quite love working with a very diverse group of scientists across multiple centers is that we try to be quite critical. We try to ask questions like, "What do we know, and why do we think we know this? What further evidence could we generate?" So one of the first things I would say in sort of being reflecting what's happening in the brain, when we started, for example, with our plasma phosphatile, I was quite curious to see that although from the stats we're showing that they correlate quite well with clinical diagnosis and also with data from, for example, CSF and also from imaging like a myeloid PET and tau PET imaging studies, I was quite curious to see that how do these measures reflect what happens in the brain because the brain is the ultimate source of the pathological diagnosis of Alzheimer's when someone unfortunately passes from the disease. And then continuously, there's, there's data that's con- that continue to pour out to show that in some unique studies where individuals, elderly adults, gave blood samples either at one point or over several years before they passed on, and then after death, they had signed to donate their brain to research. Then there are pathological diagnoses that were done by certified and board certified pathologists. So what, what was beautiful was that we could take the blood samples that were given like up to 10 years before these people passed on and then measure these new markers blindly. And then you get to reveal the pathological report. Then we can try to match them and see how they agree. But one important thing that these results have revealed is that when you look at those, the blood markers agree better with the pathological diagnosis so the diagnosis of the changes in the brain at death or after death at autopsy better than clinical diagnosis, which means that if we use biomarkers, which actually reveal the biological changes in the disease, it's going to provide a better way of characterizing Alzheimer's disease. And also importantly, to differentiate it from very, very similar forms of the disease that are seen by clinicians who look at said diseases. Because one thing we see is that, for example, when we look at plasma phosphatile, the levels are increased only in individuals who have Alzheimer's at uh, autopsy. Those who have Alzheimer's plus other forms of dementia also have high levels of the biomarker, which means that as long as someone has Alzheimer's disease, the levels of this biomarker is going to increase regardless of any other pathologies that the individual might have. But then the levels also are low and almost normal when you look at individuals who were diagnosed with other pathologies and not AD or not Alzheimer's forms. So basically, it's as similar to if someone passes on with, let's say, Parkinson's disease, for example, then the biomarker levels give you basically the same readout, similar to someone who passed on and then the pathological diagnosis was done 
and in the brain they didn't find any abnormalities that would signal the person having died of from any dementia form so it's a very good way it means that if you use the blood it can predict and it can also provide a good measure of what is happening in the brain and i think in addition also been able to look at some there are some studies that show that when you what you measure in the brain it's quite similar to what you measure in the csf or what you measure in the blood as well because uh, the absolute levels do differ and at the same time also there are some studies that are using a, a method called silk that they use some radio like and labeled uh, materials and then those ones get go into the person's so when they some people swallow it for example then they can be metabolized in a way that can go into the CSR, that go into the blood and also reflect in the brain. So in a way, we can be sure that what we're measuring agrees with the metabolism of the forms of tau and amyloid that exist in the brain and some that do come down to the CSF and some that do go down to, to um, the blood as well. Thank you for that explanation, Dr. Kakari, because I think it's important for people to know that you ha- the gold standard is autopsy. And so you've looked at the blood and the spinal fluid and compared it to what has been seen in autopsy findings. I think that speaks to the value and the need when people donate their bodies and the gratitude that scientists have to those who have donated their brains to science, because that is the only way you can know for sure, since this is a disease of the brain. I wanted to clarify too for our, our listeners, when when you say P-tau and then you're, you're saying phosphotau and then plasma phosphotau, plasma for our listeners meaning just in essence blood and then P-tau or phosphotau is sort of a, a protein, a specific protein that you're looking at. And that's what you've been studying in the blood, but also you can study that same protein in the spinal fluid and you've been comparing that to what's been seen on autopsy. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly so. So then let me ask you this, because when we measure these types of proteins, whether it's P-tau or a different type of amyloid or tau itself, are those the actual proteins from the brain when you look at it from the spinal fluid compared to the brain or the blood compared to the brain? Yes, I think there are some caveats there. So what we've seen, and then this is the hypothesis that when there are these changes that occur in the brain, so for example, in the course of developing Alzheimer's disease, you get to have accumulation of abnormal forms of tau protein that could be phosphorylated and also amyloid as well. And these form the kind of clumps that are often seen at autopsy when the brain is examined by pathologists. But then we have also over the years, together, of course, a lot of scientists have shown that when these clumps are building up in the brain, there are some forms that do get uh, chopped off. So basically, there's some core parts of, the, of these proteins. Once they're sticking together, there's some core parts that like to attract to each other and keep sticking together, and then they keep piling up, and they form massive clumps. And there are some other parts that get chopped off. And that these parts that get chopped off, and they are, are the ones that also m- most of the time get to reflect in the CSF and also go down to reflect in the blood that we're able to measure now. So basically, what we are measuring in blood and also to a large extent in CSF are sort of indirect measures of what is happening in the brain. So because it means that, for example, once you have a lot more of these proteins clumping up, if you have 20 units of the protein clumping up, then the amount that would also, those parts that will get chopped off now result in the CSF and in blood will be corresponding to 
the that 20 units of the protein that clamping up in the brain. And the same way, if you have, let's say, 100 units, then the amount that you see in the blood in the CSF will increase. Uh, that is for phosphatidyl or PTA. For myeloid, it would be the reverse. And then that would reflect. So more like uh, looking at direct that kind of association of what's happening in the brain. Although I might say that more and more, we continue to try and also target new forms of uh, newer forms that are less uh, studied in blood and also in spinal fluid that are core parts of the tangles in the brain because we realize that, that some of these core parts can still leak into cerebrospinal fluid and also we think could go into blood and that we'll be able to measure them. And these, but the interesting thing is that these core parts of the brain, uh, of the tangles and the plaques that form, they only start to increase in the symptomatic phases. So when someone is actually far off in the disease process, that's where you'll be able to see some of the levels showing up in blood compared to some of the other forms that we've already studied. And we have shown that they tend to increase quite nicely in the disease cause right from the very early stages. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. So not everything is linear and not everything is a static progression. There are obviously different changes as a person is changing and things are accumulating. But I think it's also helpful because many people think that the blood test means that the amyloid is starting new outside of the brain and that it's forming in the blood. But really, it is leaking from the brain to the CSF to the blood. And so thank you for, for clarifying that. Now, just as you've said, there are certain tests that can be useful in those who are already having symptoms, but also you're showing in your colleagues that these proteins are actually becoming abnormal or elevated in people before they have symptoms. So how far back are you identifying proteins of Alzheimer's disease, amyloid or P-tau, in people before they have symptoms? That's a very important question. I would say like, for example, in the early stages, when we looked at some of the research cohorts, and then we saw the way the biomarkers were able to predict disease changes years before, in a way it was exciting that we can use this one, but it was also quite frightening in that in just a little drop of blood, you could provide with quite good accuracy, you could be able to tell what's happening for you know, an individual. And that raises also quite some ethical issues as well. But then to answer your question, how far back? I think it also depends on several things. So for example, if the person has, let's say, early onset Alzheimer's disease, which is likely to be caused by a genetic uh, predispositions to the disease, then such individuals would show signs earlier. So it could be like, you know, in their 40s, around 40 years of age, compared to those who have late onset, and that could be after 65 years of age. So it means that if someone has early onset, then you can predict that far back into maybe when they're about 30 years. But then if someone has late onset, then the prediction will be far back to when they're about, let's say, 50 years or so. And of course, it depends on, for example, the genetic risk when someone has APOE, E4 allele of the APOE gene that also has an effect. And also, it's a story about the subtype. And then send uh, demographics as well. And we continue to study what specific factors predispose people to build up changes in amyloid and build up changes in tau uh, in the brain at quite a quick, a faster pace compared to others. And that would also allow these blood markers to be able to pick such changes much earlier. So in a nutshell, we can develop, we can predict in some of the studies we've done, it can go quite far back, about let's say 10 years or about a decade before, but then it depends on the person's background, also in terms of 
their their risk for the disease. For example, so like in terms of early onset, you can also have people who have Down syndrome, and people with Down syndrome have very quite high risk to develop Alzheimer's disease. And then it seems like in in such individuals, you're almost certain that the biomarker is going to perform quite well. And then for such people, you can also predict. You can look at they estimate the age of onset of the disease. So it's much cleaner for people with genetic risk. You can predict with high accuracy how far back they'll, they'll be to develop the disease. But then people with sporadic forms, which is you know, like late onset as well, because we are not exactly sure of, of the cause of the disease, then it makes it a bit more tricky. But what we know is that the biomarkers can predict changes of Alzheimer's as far back, in, uh, several years back up to like a decade. And that in some longitudinal studies that are beginning to, to surface, we've shown that these uh, predictive changes are quite, quite accurate because a lot of the individuals that from the early stages at baseline when they were studied, that showed high risk to develop the disease actually went on to develop this disease. And also in the same way that we've shown in some neuropathology studies that those who donated the, the blood and that you could see high predictive accuracies also went on to show Alzheimer's disease in their brain at autopsy as well. And when you talk about prediction, in essence, you're talking about risk and you've mentioned, we've talked about accuracy of the test itself in identifying the protein, but not everyone who has elevated amyloid on these tests will actually develop symptoms. And that's why I know that your group and other groups are looking at risk calculators and how do we how do we actually share predictions for at the individual level? But in the in the situations of risk calculations, it seems like there's multiple variables, which you mentioned, genetic risk and lifestyle risk and, and other factors. When you think about the future of risk calculation or prediction at the individual level, how, how accurate or reliable do you think these things could be? Yeah. So when, when it comes to these predictive algorithms, of course, they can be only as good as what you put in them. Now, as you said, like, you know, there are different aspects of, I mean, when it comes to Alzheimer's, it's quite easy for someone to look at, oh, a blood test, and that predicts that the person's going to have the disease. And I'm quite wary of that, that we shouldn't just focus on those. We should integrate with the existing paradigm when it looks at, you know, how does a clinician look at Alzheimer's as of now? And that integrate these blood tests to be another way of providing a, a tool to the clinician to, to make a good diagnosis. And so you could have the clinical, the neuropsychological testing, and that would also give a predictive uh, accuracy. But then you have to add in a lot more. You have to add in um, the pre-genotype, other forms of genetic risk that we know or we don't know about. And then the persons. But another thing is that we also, and a lot of studies continue to show that there might be other things in, for example, some comorbidities, like people with cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and some, some other forms of disease that could increase one's risk for Alzheimer's disease. But one issue there is that these risk factors or these risk models have not been tested in a lot of populations. And it makes me a bit wary because before we can roll out anything to be a very good predictive model of Alzheimer's in a global population using blood, because one thing we should remember is that once you talk about blood, blood is available everywhere, blood can be taken anywhere. So we have to validate these models in a wide group of people before we can be sure. 
because, for example, the ApoE4 genotype that we know that is a very is very well associated with Alzheimer's. In more recent studies that are beginning to surface, what we've seen is that, and these are actually new pathological studies, so brain studies of people who've passed on, who've died from Alzheimer's and related dementias. What they've shown is that for people of non-European ancestry, the ApoE4 gene, the, the allele, may not be a very good predictor. So it's not a well-associated biomarker or risk factor when it comes to developing Alzheimer's in people of non-European ancestry. However, this ApoE4 allele or genotype is very well-established and it's very well-used in clinical scenarios. So we have to try these models. And I like that these models are beginning to show up and we have to try them in a wide variety of people to get to understand where does it work where does it not work and in what conditions does it work in what conditions does it not work and and also what are some of the risk factors or what are some of the special disease factors that would affect the performance of these calculators well you answer one of my next questions dr kakari which really was knowing as much as you do about the actual test itself and what it can do you know what concerns you have about using it outside of research do you have anything any other concerns that that come to mind outside of what you just said, that these tests have primarily been utilized in people of European descent and the need to study it in other populations. Are there other things that you think worry you if we were to just immediately start implementing the blood test today? Yeah, I think there are a few things. One is that even within people of European descent that have been studied quite extensively, there's one thing that so worries me, that we, you know, as scientists, we depend on volunteers who are willing to donate their time and the you know biospecimen to be taken for research. But then more often than not, these are people who you don't need to explain so much to them to come you know, to donate their time for research, or they might have spare time to spend. And these people tend to be those who are well-educated, those who live in quite affluent suburbs, and also might have time on their hands. And you don't, we don't have a lot from people of the other part of the working class. So those people who live in, in, in suburbs that are highly are likely to, or let's say, uh, high cardiovascular burden or other kinds of diseases that we often don't see. So basically what I'm trying to say is that the research cohorts that we have studied so far tend to be quite clean, right? Because these are people who have the capacity to live quite um, healthy lifestyles and that it doesn't allow you to study the disease in the very real world setting that we would, that you would like to. So for example, once we go into the clinic with these blood tests, this is going to be quite a big test for the test themselves because are they going to perform as well in the cohorts that we've studied? And in addition to all the other things I've said, these other cohorts are also very well phenotyped because we've studied them. Most of those cohorts have been studied with, like they've been, they've gone through all the extensive biomarker testing before they were used for the blood testing as well. It means that anyone with quite questionable diagnosis oftentimes get to be excluded as as um, a basic setup for the cohort from the start. So we have to start looking at real world data. We have to look at start looking at populations that you know that just include people from everyday life, people from all walks of life, people from all the different uh, classes of suburbs that you would see, or the classes of occupations, and also from the classes of ethnicity. You know, people from all the aspects of life. And one aspect, for example, that when we often look at these cohorts, we tend to see that people that we study, one thing we should look at, for example, when it comes to immigrants, 
we don't have a lot of cohorts that look at them. And that when we have these tests going to the clinic, it's not going to discriminate against anyone. We're going to be using them the same way for every individual. There are a few studies that we have been looking at that tend to suggest that, for example, when it comes to the blood test, the way they perform may not be exactly the same across board. We're still very interested to try to understand why and how that these things do happen. Our working hypothesis is that there could be some specific factors that may interact with the development of the disease and that these ones could be more predominant in specific populations of people compared to others. And to be able to understand this as much, there's a lot more that we have to do. So in as much as the, the tests are going to the clinic, there's a lot more that we should do in terms of identifying what affects the performance of the test from a very physiological point of view as well. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. And so I guess my question, my last question to you, Dr. Kakari, is, well, what is the next most important study in fluid biomarkers and Alzheimer's disease that you're working on or that you're going to work on or that you feel the field needs to address? Yeah, thank you. This is this is something that where I discussed with uh, my boss sometime and we just wonder, so what's next for the field? Because it seems we've been we've seen quite good successes lately, and those successes tend to show that there isn't so much to do. However, I think that there's a lot more to do to try, as we talked about, you know, with these tests going to the clinic, there's a lot more to do to identify what affects the test performances and also how to improve the ability of the test to work the same way for everyone. But when it comes to the next stages, we're quite interested in looking at the other forms of pathology in the brain. So Alzheimer's, as we know it, is not a very pure form of pathology. In the brain, you, you, people with Alzheimer's are likely to have other pathologies, and that would include TDP43, it could be a nucleus, it could be other aspects. And what we're trying to do is to is focus on developing new tests for these pathologies so that we'll be able to provide a better way of characterizing not just Alzheimer's, but all the, the spectrum of dementias that we get to see because at present the best way that we can say is that with these tests you can say oh the person doesn't have a high level of uh, let's say phosphatidyl or amyloid in the blood so then they are not likely to have alzheimer's but then there's a lot more there's a huge spectrum of diseases that they could belong to so what we want to do is to better characterize that other spectrum to try to better differentiate what forms of disease that these individuals are likely to have. We think this will be extremely important now that these tests are being used in clinical trials and also new new drugs are emerging for Alzheimer's and hopefully for the related dementias as well. Well, thank you for your time today, Dr. Kakari. You know, I look forward to, to catching your presentation at Research Day. And for our listeners who are interested in hearing more from Dr. Kakari, visit adrc.wisc.edu forward slash ADRD2022 to register for our April 5th Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias Research Day, where Dr. Kakari is our keynote speaker. So thank you again, Dr. Kakari, for your time and this very thoughtful discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified about upcoming episodes. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. 
Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Kaylin Rowerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Dementia Matters, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. Follow us on Facebook at Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and find us on Twitter at Wisconsin ADRC. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters@medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.